All right, good evening. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Beer Talks. Good evening. You want to drop that music, guys? Who has the music up there? Is that you, Bart? The music? Okay, thanks, hon. Good evening. Welcome to Beer Talks. Yay! <laughs> I'm going to get us started. First, a quick announcement that we are compelled to um, cancel our July Beer Talks because no one on our committee is going to be in town. <laughs> and there's no one here to put it on. <laughs> so we'll, um, we've rescheduled that speaker for November, so you won't even miss anything. And we'll see you in August. Our speaker for August is the director of the Colorado Prairie Initiative. So that's August, but now we're going to come back to June. And we're going to start with some gratitudes, first of all, for the Windy Saddle and their staff. <laughs> Next for Greg Reed, who's actually in the house tonight over here, responsible for our sound system. Thank you, Greg. Awesome. And for goldentoday.com, which is an awesome website. If you haven't checked it out, you should. And um, not only does Golden Today do a great job of just keeping track of what's going on with beer talks, but also everything going on in town. So it's really useful uh, reference if you are interested in Golden at all. So yay for them. Indeed. So usually the person who recruits the speaker is the one who introduces the speaker. And when I suggested to Deanne that she get up here and introduce the speaker, she said, no, he can introduce himself. <laughs> so I'm going to give you his name, and he's going to introduce himself, and he's going to give his talk. This is Dan McNamara. Maybe I should introduce Deanne. That's Deanne right there. Okay, my name is Dan McNamara. I'm a research geophysicist specializing in earthquake seismology at the USGS right here in Golden, Colorado. That's a federal agency. It's uh, part of the Department of Interior. And we were housed on campus at the School of Mines. And I'm just going to go through some of the things we do. Um, down here on the lower left are some of the topics I'll discuss tonight. We monitor earthquakes. We do forecasts, long-term, short-term. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the increased earthquake rate that's occurred in the central United States in the last five to six years. I'll talk a little bit about Colorado, um, its role in earthquake research, and specifically human-caused or human-induced earthquakes. And then I'll finish up with... Um, our earthquake forecasts and some of the impacts and uh, users and how it's, uh, we try to make a, a product that's beneficial to society. Uh, the, the images here, I'll, you'll see again, the left is just a graph showing some of the interactions between uh, earthquake activity and oil and gas activity. The right side here is uh, one of our forecasts that I'll, I'll discuss. Okay, right here on campus at the School of Mines at 1711 Illinois Street is the National Earthquake Information Center. We do a number of things there. We monitor earthquakes 24-7. We operate a global network of sensors and coordinate with countries all over the world. 
we stream in about 2,000 seismic stations in real time to the, to the center, and we can locate earthquakes anywhere in the world to about magnitude 4 and above within about, well, just a few minutes. And then we, uh, we uh, do all kinds of other products that you'll see uh, throughout the talk. Where I work right now is with this group where we do what we call hazard models or, or forecasting. And traditionally, we do 50-year forecasts that are intended for building codes, for example. If you're going to build a bridge or you're going to build a, a skyscraper, you, you figure out where you are on the map. And if it's red, you've got to build it really strong. If it's gray, you're probably going to be OK. So, and so here, down here, it's just a typical seismic station. It's a permanent station that, that I was fortunate enough to work on in Jamaica. Um, you can see there's a satellite dish, there's solar panels, they're, they're fairly standalone systems, so we could lose power and they'll keep running. And they, as I mentioned, they transmit data in real time to the earthquake center here on the uh, campus of the School of Mines. Uh, one thing I should mention is that the actual seismic stations that we run are not actually maintained here, they're maintained out of a, a, a group that works at the Kirtland Air Force Base in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So a little bit of Earthquakes 101. This is a snapshot from our website, earthquake.usgs.gov. This is a, a magnitude 2.5 and uh, larger for the last 30 days. All these little circles are earthquakes, and you see they, they tend to follow a pattern globally. The red lines are what we call plate tectonic boundaries. That's where the top 50 to 100 kilometers of the Earth or so are moving around and colliding with one another. There are, th there are several different types of collisions, they, they, they collide and, and, and dive beneath, they, they separate, they slide past one another. San Andreas Fault here is an example of a uh, fault that moves side to side. The Alaska and Japanese subduction zones are where there's collisions. And again, all of these earth, most earthquakes on the earth are, are concentrated in these zones. But what we've seen recently is this weird uh, uh, occurrence of earthquakes in the middle of the continent mostly in Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, places like that. In some places, you do see mid-continent earthquakes not associated with these plate boundaries, but they're quite rare, um, especially these here in Oklahoma. And this is mostly what I'll talk about tonight, okay? Uh, down here, this graph, probably can't see it, but it's a cumulative plot of the number of earthquakes in Oklahoma since 2008. The graph goes from 2008 to 2017. The blue line shows a really significant increase. You can see a slight increase in about 2010, and then 2014, it just takes off. The red line is a measure of the energy, cumulative energy, and so you can see these big jumps, the steps occur when you get big earthquakes. The big step in 2012 or 11 is a 5.7 that occurred in Oklahoma, and then way out here in 2016, you see a really big step. There was a 5.8 that occurred just, uh, just last year. And so I'll talk a little bit more about that as I go. So again, where I work, well, the project that I currently work with is the, the forecast model. This is, this is our 50-year forecast that we produced about five years ago. And again, it's used for building codes. And so we don't really need to do it very often because buildings last a long time. They don't like to change codes very often. So we do these really long-term forecasts. And what I've done is I've plotted all the earthquakes since 2009 on our model. And you can see they tend to occur 
where you get these red or yellow zones where we expect high hazard. The, the basis of these models are just historical earthquakes, known faults, things like that. And so, again, we produce these models. So if you were to build a, a structure somewhere, you have a sense of the, the probability of, of shaking that that building could undergo. What's been happening here in Oklahoma and Kansas and Texas is that all these, these earthquakes are occurring outside of the red zone. So our model is not forecasting these accurately. And so traditionally what we do is we, we, would, we only use natural tectonic, um, you know, natural earthquakes. We, we wouldn't include mine blasts and, and oil and gas activity and things like that. And so what, what's going on here is these are at this point thought to be not naturally occurring earthquakes. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that. Here's a snapshot of the, the most recent building code. It's produced by FEMA. Maybe everybody's heard of FEMA. They're responsible for responding to hurricanes and things like that. But they also do more long-term um, hazard things like the, the, they manage the building codes. Okay. So one of the, another thing that we do out of the office in Golden is, is when there are earthquakes, we respond with... Uh, with uh, additional sensors to add more stations to the existing networks. And for example, if there's a big earthquake in Nepal or Haiti, we'll go and help the countries. In this case, these red triangles are all the stations we've deployed in Oklahoma in the last few years. And, and the blue circles are all the earthquakes that have occurred in Oklahoma in the last few years, since about 2009. There are thousands of them. Uh, and, and three last year greater than magnitude five, so they're, they're pretty significant. Here's a typical example of the instrumentation we use. We bury sensors in the ground. They can measure very weak motion and very strong motion. Each sensor has a different level of sensitivity. And then again, we use solar panels and uh, internet or satellite communications to transmit the data in real time to the earthquake center here in Golden so we can locate earthquakes. Why do we do that? We collect data from, from these earthquakes. It might look like this. This is a seismogram where you have time on the x-axis and amplitude and whatever unit you want. There are two things we try to get from an earthquake. We get the timing of the waves and we get the amplitude of the waves. The timing we use to, do, uh, to figure out where it is, we locate it. When you get multiple stations recording the same earthquake, we can kind of triangulate back to where it is. Um, and then the amplitudes tell us about the magnitude of the earthquake and also the type of shaking or the ground uh, characteristics that that station's sitting in, which, which is then used for uh, uh, models for the building code. Another interesting product that we do is when you, there's an earthquake, there's a, an online felt report. So here's an earthquake in Oklahoma in 2011 where we had 61,000 responses. They fill out a web form. They, can, they answer questions, what happened to your house? Was there cracking? Did the, did the pictures fall off the wall? Did it collapse? And based on the answers, we can calculate uh, a degree of shaking. And that helps us then determine um, different models of the Earth that help us with the forecast. Here's an example uh, il to illustrate why that matters. There are huge regional differences in, in ground shaking. Here's a magnitude six in California. 
Each of these green dots is a felt report. So you can see for a six in California, there's a pretty limited distribution compared to Oklahoma. The red dots are all the felt reports received. So there's almost a factor of 10 larger felt area for an earthquake in Oklahoma. This one out here, the green, that was a 5.8 in uh, Virginia in 2011. So the reason we, we try to record and collect this data is to determine that. We wouldn't want to over forecast the, the damage potential in California based on what we know about Oklahoma. So we, we try to factor all of that stuff in. Okay? Uh, I won't talk about that. So what's... That's a factor. That's an uncertainty in it. Well, there, there's... Keep in mind there's uncertainty in all of this stuff, but there are ground properties, earth properties, that, that make a difference. California has uh, lower density material that's all fractured up with faults, and so the energy scatters, and it just doesn't propagate as far. In the central U.S., it's very dense, solid, uh, uh, crustal properties, and the, earth, the energy travels forever. A magnitude 5 in Oklahoma is felt in Chicago. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's, so we, we try to figure all these things out and factor that into the forecasting. So what's going on? Um, at this point, the earthquakes in uh, the central U.S. have a very strong correlation with oil and gas activity. Um, the blue uh, dots here are wells where there's a, a spatial and temporal correlation, meaning they're very close in space and time. Uh, the green well dots all through here uh, don't have a correlation. So not all wells are correlated with earthquakes, just some. And it's related to fault orientation. It's related to the volume of activity. And so I'll go through a little bit of that. And so we're trying to sort all of this stuff out. And again, I want just keep in mind that all of these earthquakes that are occurring in central U.S. are a surprise. And they, they've shown that our forecasting doesn't work. So what's going on? So th this is a shot of uh, some of the, the theories and how it works. A lot of, if you read the news reports, fracking gets blamed. It's really not fracking that's causing these earthquakes in the central U.S. It's, it's related to oil and gas activity and production, but it's, it's wastewater injection. When they, when they drill a well, whether it's fracking or not fracking, any, any sort of conventional oil and gas, Water, there's water that comes up with the oil, and they have to get rid of that. EPA it really regulates where that water has to go. You can't put it on the surface, so they inject it into deep wells back into the ground. The, the fracking occurs very shallow in, in oil and gas producing rock formations like shales, and, and again, they might pull out, in Oklahoma, they can pull out as much as 90% of it when they pull it out, 90% of it might be water and only 10% of it's oil. So they have to get rid of all that water. They re-inject it into the ground, and what's happening is that water is interacting with old ancient faults that haven't been active really for possibly hundreds of millions of years, back when the dinosaurs were roaming around. And so they're reactivating these things. And it doesn't necessarily have to, it doesn't necessarily mean that the water is, is interacting with the fault. You can just you can add water in one place and that pressure can propagate through hydrostatic pressure just like a barber chair or, or the jack you use to, to raise your car. 
doesn't the, the water doesn't necessarily have to go into that fault, but it can transmit pressure that causes a fault to to rupture. Okay. Yeah, and so this is an interesting point too. The red text down here. Some of these high-volume wells, they can have hundreds of, of wells in a single region, and when they inject hundreds of millions of barrels into these things, it can influence faults as far as 10 to 20 kilometers away, causing earthquakes. Here's a special interest case um, that we've studied pretty extensively in an area called Cushing, Oklahoma. In 2014, there were two magnitude four earthquakes Cushing is important for, for this reason. This is a map of the major pipelines in the U.S. Cushing is a hub for all pipeline activity in the U.S. It's where the price of oil is set. They have as much as uh, 60 million barrels of oil on any given day in, in these tanks. The capacity is 100 million barrels of oil. And so what happened in 2014 bunch of earthquake activity happened directly underneath this uh, storage area on a fault that nobody had known about. The only way we knew about it is because it started causing earthquakes. And so, and, and over the last couple of years, there, there were three magnitude fours in 2015, and just last year in 2016, there was a magnitude five on another fault. So that there were two faults activated. We took a look. Um, there, there are several large injection wastewater injection wells in the area. The state of Oklahoma acted for the first time to, to shut down those wells for about two weeks. And amazingly, the earthquake stopped. But then they, they, they came back up as, as the injection started up again. And like I said, it, it caused a magnitude five just last year. So this was a pretty clear case where we could correlate and connect the, the wastewater injection to the earthquake activity. And again, it's, at this point, it's correlation. There's a lot of, you'll hear statements like correlation is not causation. But again, we're, we're trying to do, uh, we're also doing modeling where we, where we model the water propagation, see how it affects the faults, and see if it could support earthquake activity. And in many cases, like Cushing, it's, uh, yeah, it's definitely or, or most likely the cause. Okay, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about Colorado's role. I want to point out that these, these human-induced earthquakes are not new by any means. The USGS has been studying these for decades. One of the best cases that we know of occurred right here in Denver in the 1960s. I don't know if anybody was around back then. I see a few of you might have been. Um, no offense. Um, in the 60s... Uh, it was determined that the Department of Defense was injecting nuclear waste down a well at the Rocky Mountain Arsenal causing earthquake activity. There was a paper written in Science, 1968, I think that says, and uh, the original study was a master's thesis in 1965 from the Colorado School of Mines where they started studying these earthquakes. And here's just a little a graph from that paper. You can see the number of earthquakes per day here, and here's the uh, volume of injection. And so where there's a peak, there's a, where there's a draw, you, you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Um, and so this, this is one of the best ground truth examples that we have. And again, I just want to point out that these are not new. They've been happening a long, for a long time, and they're pretty well understood. Colorado has a long history, again, of this. And this is, here's an example. When, when these earthquakes occurred in Denver, the USGS 
had a project to go out to Rangeley, Colorado, and make earthquakes. I mean, this is, this is in the glory days of government science. We're shooting people to the moon, making earthquakes in Rangeley, Colorado. We could not get funded to do this today. There's no way. And so here they are, smoking their cigars and, and making earthquakes. And so this is one of the best ground truth control experiments that we have, where they, they use volume and pressure differences to control the earthquake rate. Again, there, there, are, there are more modern examples here in Colorado, Paradox Valley, where there's an injection well. They actually move water from a river past a salt uh, dome into a well to, uh, in the Paradox Valley area, and that has tons of earthquakes. It's well understood. More recently, there's been earthquake activity up near Greeley, um, again, related to wastewater injection. Oh, and here's another case, example two. Uh, there, just a few years ago, there was a magnitude 5.6, uh, I believe, down in Trinidad that uh, also appears to be related to oil and gas activity. So again, Colorado has played a big role in uh, our understanding of, of this. So what do I do? Back to uh, USGS and forecast modeling. I mentioned that these, this traditional way that we did forecasting was on a long-term basis, 50 years for building codes. But with this big increase in earthquake activity in the central U.S., there was a need um, to do it on a more short-term scale. So in 2016, we started producing a one-year forecast. And instead of just using naturally occurring earthquakes, we, tried, we started including everything, all of the earthquakes, and so this, these two plots show our 2016-2017 forecast in the central U.S. Areas like this in, in uh, southeastern New Missouri, these are actual naturally occurring earthquakes uh, from what they call the New Madrid seismic zone. In the 1800s, there were a couple very large, potentially magnitude 7 earthquakes. But here in Dallas and Oklahoma and up here in uh, Trinidad, Raton Basin of Colorado, again, these are the, um, the human-induced earthquakes that we've just included. And so these colors represent a forecast. It's kind of like a weather forecast. We're, gonna, we're telling you with these colors what the chance of damage is. This red color right here is a 5, five to 10% cham, chance of damage within this year that, that you will receive some damage. And, in fact, that, that has occurred. In 2016, with this forecast, there were three magnitude 5 earthquakes that occurred within that red zone. So we actually got it right. Um, 2017, it's now looking good. No big earthquakes, so we're kind of pleased about that. The forecast may be wrong, but that's potentially a good thing. And, and yeah, and so what we do with that, then, is try to modify the methods. Uh, okay, I just want to move into w how bad are these things? They're, they're, very, they're not that big. The largest earthquake that we've seen in the central U.S. is about 5.8. Um, and so when you look at this, here's a scale. The, the magnitude of the earthquake is over here. And this kind of shows you sort of a relative uh, uh, equivalent um, event. So here, if you look at magnitude 5, you scale it over here. 
it's, it's a, a little bit larger than your average tornado. The energy released from an average tornado and potentially the damage from an average tornado. So these are not catastrophic earthquakes that are leveling large cities like might occur in Japan or Los Angeles, for example. They're, they're fairly you know, moderate in size. But an average tornado can cause some damage, and so that's, that's what we try to do. We try to make these forecasts not so much for uh, the, the chance of a, of a city collapsing, you know, but, but w- what kind of damage is going to happen to your house, and, and how should insurance companies and, and local governments deal with these things, okay? Uh, here's some examples. 1960... 60s, there were a few magnitude 9s. Uh, I should put some more recent stuff in here, but they're much, much larger than what are occurring in, uh, in the central U.S. Here's some examples, uh, just, just continuing on with the impact of these things. In Oklahoma and Kansas, people aren't used to feeling these things, so they're quite surprised. And here's a couple cases where you know, pe- they're on TV delivering the news, and, and they feel it as it happens. So it's, it's quite funny. Here's some, here's some shots of some of the typical damage. Mostly the damage is occurring to older, uh, unreinforced masonry buildings, like what we're sitting in right here, right now. Um, modern buildings that are built to modern codes uh, are not really uh, experiencing damage from these earthquakes. But homes are, uh, facades on houses, chimneys, things like that. Okay, and so... What's, what's important to keep in mind is that insurance companies are not compensating people. And so each one of these larger earthquakes, like a 5.7, there can be as much as 5 to $10 million in damage to hundreds of homeowners, and nobody's getting compensated. So that's what we're trying to work out right now is uh, who's responsible, who's going to pay these people. And unfortunately, at this point, it's probably the taxpayers until somebody, some insurance companies step up and do something. Yes. Right. People in Oklahoma don't have earthquake insurance, oftentimes, and so they're they're having damage from earthquakes. The insurance industry knows that oil and gas is responsible, and so they're they're suing oil and gas. There are two major class action lawsuits right now where homeowners are suing oil oil companies and suing insurance companies. So none of this science really matters. It's all going to be settled in the courts eventually. Okay, here's some more damage. Here's, a, here's one from Colorado, actually, from a few years ago. There was a 5.3 in Trinidad that I mentioned. And again, these aren't large enough for, to cause catastrophic damage. They're just damage enough to total your house and cost individuals a lot of money that no one's getting compensated for. Here's an interesting study in Oklahoma that that I found. It's from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland for some reason. But they found that uh, looking at property values um, in in regions that have experienced damage in Oklahoma, there's been about a 9.8% decrease in home home values just because of uh, where that house is located. Many of them have had damage, but even those that haven't had damage are, are losing value in the property. Here's some, this, these are a couple shots. I mentioned that we have this online web form. Here's two examples from uh, two different earthquakes. Here's the 5.7 that happened in Oklahoma. And so the colors are related to that calculated 
uh, severity of the shaking. For these two earthquakes, you can see a lot of red and orange. These are very strong, strongly felt earthquakes. Again, this is the distribution of shaking. The star is where the earthquake occurred. And then we map out the shaking levels based on these web responses. The shaking is not uniform. You might think it's like when you toss a rock into the water, this nice you know, spherical or, or, or circular wave propagating, but it's really related to the soil types, the rocks that you're sitting on. If you're on soft soil, you shake more than if you're on a hard rock, for example. And so we map this out, and I guess what I wanted to point out here is that for these two earthquakes, there's very strong shaking. So you can see there's quite a large region where there's damage and people are losing value in their properties just because of these earthquakes. So a lot of states have started to enact regulations. There's, there's been no federal regulation. All of this stuff is handled at the state level at this point. States' rights, you know, they get, they, they're, they're autonomous and they get to make their own decisions. And so these states in purple, um, Colorado included, have actually started regulating wastewater injection and, and some of the oil and gas activity because of these earthquakes. And so I'm going to show you some examples uh, the impact of regulation. Arkansas was one of the first states um, in a, there were some earthquake, here, here's the earthquake activity in blue. Um, I'm sorry, this is, the, this is the number of barrels injected into a well near uh, what they call the uh, Guy Greenbrier sequence in northeastern, northwestern Arkansas. The red are the earthquakes per day. And so when you can see when they, the state halted injection, the earthquake rate just kind of tapered off. And so again, it's, it's only correlation, but it's a pretty good start, you know? This, this leads us to think that there's some connection. And, and you can see from this that the regulations have had an impact. Here's a case from Oklahoma. There are many lines on here. I'll try to go through them. But the purple bars here are the number of earthquakes per day. You can see here's that 5.7 that happened in, uh, in 2011. It was kind of random. And then there are a bunch of aftershocks associated with it, so it's, it's busy. And then in 2013-14, it really ramped up to peak in about 2015, another little peak in 16, and since then, it's tapered off quite a bit. And in the last six months, there's been hardly any activity in Oklahoma, just very small earthquakes. The, the reddish line is a running average. Uh, I believe it's a 90-day average, so it, it, again, it shows you it peaked. The, the green line here is the, the volume of wastewater injected into the formation that's causing most of the earthquakes. So you can see the, the peak of the injection was here in about 2014, and then the earthquake, earthquake activity declined after maybe a six-month lag after the injection stopped. The green line is oil production. And so what we, so oil production flattened out here in about uh, 2015, and that's probably related to the price of oil. So what we don't know is what's having the biggest impact, regulations or just the price of oil? Because the price of oil being low, activity production goes down, and as a result, we see this uh, related earthquake activity go down. There's an interesting study uh, by Jerry Boak and Kyle Murray. Carl Murray was a uh, graduate student at Colorado School of Mines who's now at the Oklahoma Geological Survey, and he's done this cool study to try to separate out the impact of the price of oil versus 
the regulations. Let's see if I can explain this. Here, this green line here is the price of oil. Just craters right here in about mid-2014. Everybody experienced that. It's great for us because gas is cheap. But for the industry, it's not that great. The, the, the bluish here is the uh, volume of wastewater injected into the rock formations. And so if, if the price of oil goes down, oil and gas activity goes down, and so they have a lot less wastewater to get rid of. If you look at just the, the wells that were impacted by regulations in the state of Oklahoma, this is the line. So these guys are suggesting that that, that difference is the difference that would have uh, been due to regulations. And so this is a very cool study, I think. But these, again, these are things that we're trying to work out. What we're really interested in seeing is what happens when the price of oil goes back up. I don't want that to happen, but my guess is the earthquake activity will go back up again. Okay, just to kind of summarize in the last couple slides, I hope I didn't go too long. Okay. Um, users of this forecast, there are a lot of different organizations and agencies. These Oklahoma Corporation Commission, Kansas, Colorado Corporation Commission, these are the organizations, the state agencies that are responsible for regulating oil and gas activity and also wastewater activity. And so they see these models that we're producing and they, they're using them to, to manage the wastewater effectively. It's very complicated. It's related to faults, where they are, what the orientation of the faults are, what the volume of injection is. And so it's a very complicated thing to manage this stuff. And nobody wants to harm the industry. Nobody wants, everybody loves heating their homes and driving cars. So we, this all has to work out. And the people that are experiencing damage should get some compensation. So these are the things that everybody's working out. Insurance industry is using it. They're trying to evaluate the risk and impact. Army Corps of Engineers is using our models to evaluate dams and, and spillways and other things. Um, government and academic scientists like myself are, are, are risk modeling and doing things like that. And also the real estate industry has started using these for house appraisals. I've noted that study where there was a 9.8 decrease in property values. So they can just look in these areas and, and, and estimate what kind of uh, change there might be to property values. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Here's some takeaway messages. I won't go through them, but if anybody has questions, let me know. We, we are going to come back up for Q&A. So we'll hold this slide here with questions because we will come back up. Before we do that, I want to acknowledge that our beer ambassador is obviously on some important diplomatic mission this month. And um, so we do have beer from Golden City and I think maybe the deputy chief of mission has a few comments to add in before we take our break. Thank you, Barb. Very few comments because as I always say, unlike Frank, I'm not a beer connoisseur. So I was just going to tell you that the uh, two we had tonight, um, Honey Wheat and Lookout Stout, were both 6% uh, alcohol, so equal buzz rates for both. The uh, Honey Wheat, however, is much less bitter with uh, 16 IBUs uh, versus 37 IBUs for the Lookout Stout. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Golden City Brewery, um, just that... Of our craft breweries, they are the oldest. 
Uh, Coors was started in 1973, but Golden City Brewery was started in 1993. And then it took 20 years before any other craft breweries came along. In um, 2013, we had a bonanza of craft breweries. We got Cannonball Creek, Mountain Toad, and Barrels and Bottles all in 2013. Then it was another three years. And in 2016, Holladaily and New Terrain joined us. And the uh, laundromat across Arapahoe from here has now been sold. And the, uh, I, I don't know a lot about it, but the company that bought it is Colorado Plus Cidery and Pub. They've purchased the laundromat and they've applied for a license for the manufacture, distribution, and sale of finest liquor in sealed containers uh, for consumption off-premises and for the consumption of malt, vinous, and spiritus liquor on the premises of the licensee. So look forward to all of that. Sometime in the future at the laundromat across the street. And that's the history of our breweries. Not all suds will be in the washing machine. There will no longer be washing machines, but thank you, Steve. That's it. Thanks. We'll come back in a few minutes if you need some more beer or whatever else. Thank you. in this curious audience. So we're going to bring Dan up, and he's going to pick. And when you um, give your question, please wait for a moment so that Dan has a chance to repeat your question so it's on the recording for the podcast. Awesome. Thank you. I have a beer. Any questions? Yes. Oh, who do I start? I think you were first. I'm, you next. So your second point says that the wastewater Right. Right. It's a so, subtle thing. So that's kind of like really a the the seismicity is related to wastewater disposal. Fracking is one way of producing oil and gas. There are conventional ways too. In in many places fracking is the dominant method, but not the only method. And so my point there is simply that all oil and gas production produces wastewater. And that wastewater is what's causing earthquakes. Now, in Oklahoma, in the, in the Arbuckle Formation, or, or in, the, in the production formation, there's as much as 80 to 90 percent or water coming out. In North Dakota, that's not the case. There's much higher cut of oil, and so there's a lot less wastewater. There are no earthquakes, and so not all wastewater causes earthquakes. You know, it has to do with the volume and the orientation of the faults and the depth of the faults, all kinds of different geologic issues. Does that answer your question? Uh, 
you look like a geologist. You probably know what you're talking about here. You do, yeah. I don't know. You just do. Maybe. Okay. Well, actually, it is kind of Yes. Yes. The question is, does the data that we're collecting tell us about the faults, basically? Does that summarize it? Yes. And so I mentioned that we have been responding to these things with, with sensors. What we try to do is get right on top of earthquakes. When there's a big earthquake, there's always a bunch of aftershocks associated with it because the ground will move, and then it will continue to jiggle a little bit, causing more earthquakes. So we try to locate those things very precisely, and in doing that, we can define where that fault is. In many cases in Oklahoma, we know about the faults, but most of the earthquakes are occurring on faults we don't know about. So we try to get the depth, the orientation, and, a, and an interesting thing that maybe isn't obvious, but the magnitude of an earthquake is related to the surface area of the fault. So you can't have a magnitude 9 on a tiny little fault. It ha so we try to map out the dimensions of that fault and then forecast the how large of an earthquake it could produce. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Do you think these They're all basement faults. Yeah, they're all below the sedimentary layers and into uh, the granite. And so the, these are not porous. They're, they're, you know, so if water does get into them, the only place the water can go is in the cracks that already exist. And that's, that's why the earthquakes are happening. Okay? Who else had a question? Back here? Do you, do you buy earthquake insurance? Uh, in California I did, but not here. Maybe I should. Uh, no. That's good question, though. Man, I'm in trouble. Oh, the question is, do I buy earthquake insurance? And I, I don't. Christy, my wife back here, can we deal with that somehow? <laughs> okay. Uh, right here and then you? Where else could the wastewater go is the question. There are a lot of great studies and, and things going on right now. I was at a meeting in Oklahoma a little while ago talking about this with the state. The EPA has regulated that you can't put it on the surface because it's full of toxic chemicals and fracking fluids that, uh, that uh, would be harmful to the water supply. And so... That's why they inject it deep in the ground. They put it way under the water table, well below. They, they case the wells and stick it down and hope none of it gets into the water table. There are all kinds of other alternative options. They're talking about um, trying to purify it and use it to cool down nuclear reactors and things like that, or just put it on the surface and, and evaporate it away and then get rid of the chemicals. There are a lot of things like that. Um, that they're talking about, but again, the current EPA regulations are that you can't put it on the surface. And so we're working with the federal government and the state governments to figure out if something else can be done. And, but the other issue, too, is that not all injection wells cause earthquakes. And so we're trying to manage and figure out where to put it and where not to put it. I showed you that example of the oil storage facility. That's a place not to put it because there's all this oil on the surface of the earth. Other places would be underneath big cities where people live and houses 
um, are, are located. There are many remote places where the faults are not likely to cause earthquakes where it could be injected. So the, all of that stuff is being looked at. Do you have a question? Yeah. Right. How, and obviously, the, ultimately, they were exonerated for that or not working. How has that changed how you present your data or share information to? Yeah. Or maybe explain that case to me. You would have heard about that. How that's changed. The question is about the Italian scientists were, that were prosecuted for uh, not forecasting earthquakes properly, and how has that affected us? That was a really weird example. They were asked specifically. You know, what are the chances of an earthquake happening in one spot in the next year? And they said, very slim, not, not likely. We do it in a, in a different way. We, we have a probabilistic approach over a large area. I don't know if you noticed, the probabilities are very low. I mean, like 2 to 5%. If, if, if the Weather Channel said there's a 2% chance of rain, you would not wear a raincoat. And so that's how low our probabilities are. And that, and, you know, so we're very conservative. Um, how has that affected us, you know, specifically? I would never say one way or another that an earthquake will or will not happen. It's all cast in this probabilistic distribution kind of approach. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Is it a challenging case like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very scary. Uh, yes, back to you. It's okay. Yeah. It could happen. I mean, in the 1870s, there was a magnitude 6 up in Fort Collins that if that happened again or happened south down here, it could cause a lot of damage. And so, yeah, I can't say. Maybe I should go get some insurance. I'll look into it. Are you a salesman or something? (laughs) Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, that's again one of the. Okay, the, the question is can the wastewater be reused in the fracking process somehow? It'd have to be cleaned up. Um, the, again, there are numerous studies uh, occurring in Texas and Oklahoma to figure out how to reuse it. But again, the most. You know, there's so much of it. There's way more water than they need for the fracking process. So you still need to dispose of a lot of it. But, yeah, that's one of the, one of the options. Any other questions? Yeah. Two-part question. Is the energy released by the earthquakes greater or less than the energy introduced by wastewater injection? Wow. It's greater. Because these are actually... Um, these are the way to think about these is these are earthquakes that may have occurred naturally over a much longer period of time. Plate tectonics is happening. Uh, the the plates are being stressed on the edges, and you do get earthquakes in the middle of these tectonic plates over longer periods of time. And so what happens is 
Oklahoma has a magnitude 5 earthquake maybe once every 100 years. But what they've done is by injecting that water down, they've released four magnitude 5 earthquakes in the last five to six years. And so there's, there's energy that may have dissipated over you know, thousands of years that, that has dissipated in just a few yeah, years. Yeah, that's the second part of my question. Is this ironically possibly a good thing to release pent-up seismic energy? No, it depends on where it is, you know. I mean, that's always a question. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not repeating the question. Is it a good thing to release up some of the pent-up energy? Uh, that's, it's so complicated, we have no idea, basically. I mean, we barely know where earthquakes are going to occur, let alone, you know, what the impact of one and, and the stress changes that, that might cause. Um, I would say no, because where when you get a big earthquake, it can cause other earthquakes to happen, and we just have no understanding really of, of the, the the process is so slow. One of the cool things about this as an earthquake scientist is there's all this activity happening, and we can control it and manage it. It's like this natural laboratory in Oklahoma where we're learning a lot about the the physics of earthquakes. And so, some of your something like your question, may, we may be able to answer better with more more research. Any others? Yeah. How big is your budget and where are you Next question. Uh, the USGS is a billion dollars a year for the whole thing. Um, and you know that's nothing compared to say a fighter jet or something like that. The earthquake hazards program is much less than that. I had a slide. I don't think I mentioned I had an exact number, but uh, actually I prepared a, a bunch of extra slides in case anybody asked questions. Um, so just tracking down these earthquakes alone in the central U.S., we've, 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 we've moved about $3 million a year for a total of about $10 million in the last five years to just monitoring this. So and th that's not new money to us. That's money we're taking from California and Alaska and other places. And so we haven't had an increase at all. In fact, we get minor decreases every year. Under the current budget that we just got from uh, the current president about a, a few weeks ago, they're calling for about a 20% cut over the whole USGS. Uh, some programs are being completely in eliminated. Induced earthquake studies are one of them that will probably just be eliminated if the, that current budget goes through. But it has to go through Congress, and they'll fight about it, and it'll hopefully, you know, be worked out. But again, I, I pointed out the activity has gone down quite a bit, and so they've figured out how to manage this. The big question is what will happen when the price of oil goes back up. Forgot to repeat the question again. Sorry. No, you're good. Do any more questions? All right. Thanks, guys. We do, of course, we want to thank our speaker, Dan. We want to thank the Windy Saddle, and we'll see you guys, we hope, in August. Woo! Yay! Thanks for